So Romans 5, we'll begin in verse 6 and see how far we get. The title of our sermon this morning is The Right Time. Keywords for our worshipers in training are weak, sinners, and reconciled. And you can find our text if you want to follow along in the Blue ESV Bible on page 942. On February of 1944, a 25-year-old American named Elmer Curley Richardson was drafted by the United States Army to join the fight in World War II in Europe. The military needed every man that they could get at the time, and Elmer was attached to the 12th Infantry 4th Division, and he was older than, than most of the other men in his unit, and he quickly rose to the rank of sergeant. All of his troops ended up in the uh, Hertgen Forest on the border of Belgium and Germany in late November. The Germans launched their most aggressive offense against the Allied forces on December 16, 1944, as what was known in Allied history as the Battle of the Bulge, and it lasted more than a month. On December 18th, Elmer was riding in a jeep with another sergeant. They came across a German ambush. The Germans opened fire. The jeep crashed into a ditch. Elmer was shot in the stomach. Briefly, he was able to evade capture. Eventually, he was apprehended by German forces on December 20th, and he was sent to an abbey that Germans had converted into a hospital at Hellenenburg, Germany. And it was there that Elmer ended up on the operating table of a German doctor named Ludwig Gruber. Dr. Gruber served in Germany amongst all of the blood-soaked Eastern Front where Germans and Russian forces slaughtered one another in the snow. And Elmer was in bad shape as he lay there on the table. The bullet had mangled his intestines that had nicked his liver and it caused all kinds of intestinal, internal damage. He should have died. And he was an enemy combatant to the Germans, and he was not entitled to the same care. He was not entitled to the same comfort as a wounded German, or at least that's what the hospital's commanding officers had told Dr. Gruber, but he ignored them. He spent hours in surgery with Elmer. He resected his intestines, and for a time he used a very rare technique to save Elmer's life. As Dr. Gruber's superiors were barking at him, he continued to work. But why? Why would he spend so much time working on an enemy when so many Germans needed his help? The doctor argued that the point was moot. It didn't matter who this was. He had a patient on his table who needed help, and he was going to help him. As he recovered, Elmer and Dr. Gruber forged a friendship, and Dr. Gruber fought to keep him at the hospital for an additional week under his care so that his wounds could heal. And during that week of healing, a U.S. Army captain toured the hospital under a flag of truce, and the Americans were planning to bomb the area because the Germans had military vehicles parked outside of the hospital. Well, the captain met with Elmer, and Elmer took on the role of negotiating with the Germans. The Americans would not bomb the area if the Germans would remove the military equipment. And that deal was struck 
And as a result, an untold number of German and American lives were saved because Dr. Gruber insisted on Elmer being cared for even during his recovery. Well, the two men eventually exchanged information and kept in contact with one another up until the time of Dr. Gruber's death in 1988. In recent years, Elmer's son Steve retraced his father's steps during the war. He was able to make contact with the doctor's three sons, two of whom became doctors themselves. He was able to meet with them and tell the story of his father and what their father had done for him, and they were all humbled by Dr. Gruber's humanity in the middle of a war. None could truly fathom, why did he choose Elmer out of the hundreds of wounded? Why did he fight so hard and so valiantly to save him? But for a few hours in that hospital during World War II, a German doctor fought as hard as possible to save the life of an American soldier. And Elmer and Steve and many, many other people have Dr. Gruber to thank for their life and for their posterity. Steve commented in an interview about his father's story, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for Dr. Gruber. My family wouldn't be here. I don't know what inspired him to act in the manner he did, but I am forever grateful that he did. Well, what would you do? By this point, Dr. Gruber had undoubtedly seen many hundreds of his fellow countrymen and soldiers wounded. Many of them had died in the midst of war at the hands of the Allied forces. For sure he had lost friends, maybe he had lost family members, and yet here he was operating to the best of his ability to save the life of a man who in any other context might have taken his life just as easily. What would you have done? And as we, as we continue to look at what Paul writes in Romans 5 this morning, we come to one of the most well-known sections of the Bible. Now, I'm going to say that a lot as we walk through Romans, obviously, but this, <laughs> this you will recognize. And we have that question, what would you do with your enemy as they lie wounded in front of you? Would you care for them? Would you love them? Would you do anything for them at all? But it's here that the Apostle Paul shines a spotlight on this amazing reality of what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, namely that Christ didn't only die for us, as if that wasn't enough. No, He didn't just die for us because we were His friends or because we were His faithful followers, but Christ died for us while we were still His enemies. He didn't just do a surgery. He didn't just patch us up and send us on our way. He died for us as His enemies. He made us His friends. He made us His, his brothers and sisters. He gave us an everlasting life and communion with Him, reconciled to God for all eternity. Who would do that? Well, Paul shows us this morning this is exactly what Christ did. And it is exactly what we needed and what we need that we might never taste death, but only know true and everlasting life with our God. So let's read beginning in verse 6 of Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for 
the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, you'll recall, as we have looked at the past few weeks, verses 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul has shown us the benefits or the fruits of our justification. He showed us that we have peace with God. We have access to God's presence in the grace upon which we stand. We have hope, and we have everything we need to persevere in the midst of our suffering that is sure to accompany us in this life. And so, as we continue on this morning, Paul turns our focus more narrowly to the atonement of Christ and to, again, reflect upon our own hearts as we look in verse 6. For the first thing we see in verse 6 is that apart from the work of Christ, you have no hope. Now, verse 6 obviously picks up in the middle of Paul's building discussion on our justification. So, so we have to think first about the connection of what we saw, uh, what we see in verse 6 to what we saw in verse 5. Remember, in verse 5, he showed us that the experience of the love of God in our lives is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And then you'll notice that verse 6 begins with the word, for. For, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so this connects us back. We're not off on a new adventure here quite yet. We're still in the same line of thinking. But Paul is highlighting now, and once again, he's showing us what all of the benefits of justification rest upon, namely, the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, this is where Paul begins to bring together the doctrines of original sin and the atonement. And as I was thinking about this text, I was reading Charles Spurgeon had preached from verse 6, and he began his sermon reminding the people of God that while they hear these familiar texts, and we always need to remind ourselves as we hear familiar texts and, and, and reflect on familiar texts that these are still texts that we need to hear, we need to contemplate. It's easy to get ourselves in a mindset that I already know this, I've already heard this, what Paul continues to, to come back to repeating himself in the gospel, maybe says it a little bit different, but we, we've already heard this in Romans. Why do we continue to come back to the same place? And Spurgeon said, if you do not see yourself needing to come back to the same place, then you don't understand yourself, and you don't understand the power of the gospel and what it has done to transform you. What do you need week in and week out? Day after day, you need a reminder of the gospel. You need to be reminded of what Christ has done. 
And so Paul highlights for us what the benefits are. But he, he brings together the doctrine of original sin and the atonement here in these verses and why it is that the gospel is so necessary for us. And the other thing we'll see as we move through this passage is that Paul is making a, a historical argument. He's pointing us to what has happened, and then he's showing us that as a result of these historical events or this historical event, that there is this ongoing present reality, and it goes on into the future. And why did this historical event have to happen? Because without it, we are too weak. Without it, we are too helpless to do anything for ourselves. For while we were still weak, or some translations say, when we were still without strength. And why were we without strength? We know from way back in chapters 1 and chapter 2, from what Paul has taught us, namely that we were conceived in sin. This is the doctrine of original sin. It impacts our spiritual strength. It's, it's been an issue of debate throughout the church's history in essentially every generation. Now, most churches will confess the doctrine of original sin, the idea that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and the consequence of their disobedience is that all of creation was subjected to corruption, and all the progeny of Adam and Eve, that is, every human being, is conceived, is born into a state of spiritual death and moral corruption. So the debate about original sin is not generally with regard to whether or not it exists at all, although there are some who might seek to deny it, but rather it revolves around the question of degree. To what degree is human nature corrupted? To what extent is mankind fallen from our original righteousness? Historically, you may recall, this was the question at the heart of the debate between Augustine and his condemnation of the heresy of Pelagius, who denied the fall altogether. The main thing that Augustine helps us to learn is the prolific effects of sin, that they're so great, they're so pervasive within the soul of every person that we are left in a state of spiritual death. In other words, even though we are biologically alive, even though we have the use of our brains, of our, of our mind, of our affections, of our wills as we live on this earth, our humanity has been so corrupted by the fall that we are void of any and all moral ability to please God in any way. We are so deeply entrenched in our natural state, in our sinfulness, that we cannot in any way incline ourselves to the things of God. And so, we understand that if God were to make a way of salvation, if God were to make an offer of mercy and grace and everlasting life and salvation in Jesus Christ, but to do nothing whatsoever in our hearts to turn our affections toward Him, we would never do anything on our own to that end. 
We do not have, nor have we ever had, the moral capacity to do so. Listen, it's not even that God does 99.9% of the work, and all we have to do is 0.1%, and that 0.1% is our final determining effort that dictates whether or not we inherit eternal life. No. The evidence of Scripture is overwhelming and repeats over and over again with resounding certainty that unless the Holy Spirit empowers the Word of God in the Scriptures, in preaching, in outreach, in evangelism, in missions, no one will ever and no one has ever come to Christ. That's exactly why Jesus said Himself, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So this is the point that Paul is making, namely that Christ died for the ungodly while we were still without any spiritual strength whatsoever. We have no spiritual strength in and of ourselves to affect our salvation. None. Nada. Zilch. It doesn't exist. And so God wasn't waiting. God wasn't hoping that we would willfully come to Him. He wasn't waiting for us to repent of our sins. He wasn't calling us to clean ourselves up. Even if just that 0.1% of the cleaning we needed to do would be on us so that we would come to Him. No. He knows our makeup. He knows we are weak. He knows we are helpless on our own. He knows our spiritual, moral corruption, and that without Him working by the power of the Spirit, we remain dead in our trespasses and sins. It's an amazing thing to sit back and to think about what God did to bring all of human history to the most important event, which is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of all the political wranglings that were going on behind the scenes. The advisement of Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod. The conspiring of all the soldiers. The involvement of the Sanhedrin. The paying off of of Judas to make sure it could all take place. It's all a, a wicked plot in the human sense. And even Peter was preaching... In Acts chapter 2, and he said, it's you who killed him. It's all of you who killed him. But what else does he say? In the same exact verse, he says, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It didn't happen too soon. It didn't happen too late. As Paul shows us right here, it happened according to God's plan, and it happened at the right time. It was perfectly appointed. It was divinely orchestrated. And so you see here Paul is showing us and wanting us to see that Christ didn't die just to demonstrate the love of God, although he certainly did that. He didn't die to display a kind of moral influence and superiority over all the universe, although he absolutely has that. But look at what Paul says, a shocking statement when you consider the depths of your own depravity and the perfection of Christ. He died in this world at the exact right time, subjecting himself to all that comes against him for, for whom? For the ungodly. And who is that? 
every single one of us. Christ died for His church. Christ died for His people. And every one of us in and of ourselves is ungodly. Every last one of us Christians, in our weakness as human beings, we're ungodly. We need Christ. He didn't die to make salvation possible. He died to secure our salvation everlastingly. Christ died for His sheep. Christ laid down His life at the right time, leaving no doubt in heaven whatsoever that all for whom He died have their sins covered, that they might spend eternity with Him alone. He died for all whom the Father has given to Him. And if the, if the efficacy of Christ's death depends on us, Christ would have no fruit from His death. But while we were powerless, while we were weak in our souls to incline ourselves to the things of God in due time, at the right time, even when we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, Paul continues to build on this argument. Remember, we've seen Paul is a master of building arguments, layer upon layer. It's all just piling up, and he's doing that once again. And the second thing he shows us in verses 7 and 8 is that even though you were his enemy, Christ died for you. You see, first he, he displays that you were the ungodly, but now he, he ratchets it up a bit and says, oh, you were ungodly, but you're also his enemy. You're at enmity with God. You were weak, and Christ died for you, ungodly as you were. But the next step, and here we see Paul taking the historical fact of Christ's death to help us to see the beauty of God's love. As was mentioned back in verse 5, you can begin to see more and more of what he meant there. By receiving eyes to see the love of God and the work of Christ, he pours his love experientially into the hearts of his people. I'm not talking about a, a mystical experience. This isn't some kind of experience disassociated from the Word of God, but rather it is firmly rooted in God's Word, and it works in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are being filled up with the love of God, and it is demonstrated by the God-man, Jesus Christ, who died because of our sins and rose for our justification. And so experientially, we have communion with God. We commune with our triune God, the Spirit who pours the love of God into our hearts, the Father who has loved us everlastingly, the Son who has died in our place, giving us all that we need that we might stand as those declared righteous before God. And we get to commune with each and every member of the Trinity, even though we were His enemies. And Paul wants us to feel the significance and the weight of his argument. And so what about you? Are you... Are you a righteous person? Are you a good person? Think what you want about yourself or anyone else, but it's rare. It's exceedingly rare that anyone would die for you. Now, there's a debate here as to whether or not Paul is referencing two different people, the righteous or the good, but it doesn't seem to change the argument either way. 
His point is the same. And when we talk about someone being a, a good person, we remember back to Romans 3, we're not, we're not talking about a, a moral uprightness. We're referring generally to someone who has a certain demonstration of love or concern for others, a nice person. Maybe they're willing to make personal sacrifices for the good of others. And, and so Paul is saying that even that person, that person that everyone looks to and says, ah, oh, he's a good dude, I like that guy. Even him, very few would willingly jump in front of a train to save him at the expense of their own life. Now, certainly, one might be far more willing to die for a family member, their spouse, their child. I would die the second for my wife or children without hesitation. And even those who have no love for God would be willing to do that sort of thing for their, for their family, for the closest of their family. But, and then there are certainly stories of those sorts of things happening. But when we come to the atonement of Jesus Christ, we're not talking about righteous people. We're not talking about good people. We're talking about us. <laughs> we're not talking about His closest loved ones. We're talking about Jesus dying for godless people who hated them and displayed their hatred for Him in their every thought and every action. We were His enemies. And yet He died for us. Now notice something here in verse 8. Notice Paul writes, Christ died for us at the end of the verse. It's a past event. It's something that really happened in a real place at a real moment in time. It's a historical event. It's a solid, objective reality, unchanging. So it seemed right for those who are paying attention to the grammar here, and a good grammar teacher would bring out the red pen and show Paul that he changed tenses in the same sentence, a big no-no. But he does that on purpose, doesn't he? Notice we have this fixed historical reality that Christ died for us, but how does the verse begin? God shows His love for us. You see, that's not back then. That's not 2,000 years ago. That's right now. God shows His love for us. That's ongoing right here, right now, in this place, in these words. God demonstrates His love for us today. And how does He do that? He does that through the past historical fact of the death of His Son as a sacrifice for us. So again, think back, verse 5, God pours His love into our hearts God demonstrates His love by directing our minds to consider the death of His Son. And this is our experience of the truth. This is our experience of God, and with God this is our communion with Him, namely hearing and understanding and knowing the love of God in the real historical work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, God demonstrated His love for us in the past, but He continues to do so as we are continually reminded in the Scriptures. We are continually reminded in the faithful preaching of the Word 
as we are continually reminded, even in the Lord's Supper, that while we can, while we can all look in the mirror and see ourselves and be reminded of who we were and who we are even now in our own sin and all the messiness of our lives and all of our ungodliness and being at enmity with God prior to Christ's work, even as enemies of God, Christ died for us. And so we know the love of God. We know the nearness of God who brought us near when we were once far off. You know, I've had enough conversations as a pastor, and I've had enough of my own experiences as a Christian to know how desperately we all need to be reminded of God's love for us. We are in desperate need of knowing the nearness of God. We are in desperate need of knowing the truth of God. And we need to refresh our understanding day after day. If we don't, we just get, we just get so discouraged. We get so beat down because I don't know about all of you, but when I, when I think and I know and I, and I look at myself and consider my own heart and my own thoughts and my own actions and my own doubts and my own failures, I can easily get to my, myself to a place and, and think, what am I even doing? Maybe I'm just playing this game like I am a Christian when in reality I'm just a wicked fleshly person. You ever have those thoughts? You know, I I think we all have this default idea in our minds about God that He's just constantly disappointed with us. He's just looking at us with a look we probably all received from our fathers at some point. Not happy, just disappointed because there He goes again. There she goes again, screwing up once more. I know it's hard to believe, but I got that look quite a few times growing up. I like to test the boundaries a little, see where I could go. And we just think God is frustrated with us. We think God is annoyed with us. Every time we do something or say something, it's like, it's like it throws his, he, he's there and He throws His arms in the air and is embarrassed by us. And what we are and how we're supposed to be representing Him, but we're not. But dear Christian, do you think God is so weak? Do you think God is so powerless that He can't handle the fallout of your sin, no matter what that looks like? Remember, it's when you hated Him that Christ died for you. So you think now that he's adopted you as his son, now that he's adopted you as his daughter, that he's just going to get so frustrated and upset with you all the time? Do you know that the most profound thing that has kept me in the fight through the years is, is this reminder from the Scriptures that God isn't a grumpy miser that is difficult to please. And when I bring home a 99% on my test that he asks why I didn't get 100, is that how you think about God? He's sort of in this, this perpetual state of a, of a face palm. He's just frustrated. Whenever you do anything, you're the black sheep of the, of the Christian family, and he just puts up with you because he saved you, but he kind of wishes he hadn't. I know how you get there in your mind, but it's then that you need to remember when you were far worse, 
when you were standing amongst the people in the crowd, shouting with all your life, with all your words, with all of your actions, with all of your ungodly thoughts, crucify him, crucify him. That was the story of your life and your vile hatred for the one who made you. You crucified him. I crucified him, but at the right time, it was all ordained by God so that I could stand here this morning and say, yes, you and I were pretty terrible when it comes down to it, and you still are full of struggle in this world with the flesh and the devil on your shoulders. You're going to mess up. You're going to trip. Sometimes you're going to fall. But God knew all that. God knows all that. God is not surprised by any of that, and Christ died for you anyway. He's not a grumpy old man with his arms crossed and a furrowed brow just looking for a reason to make your life miserable. No, God demonstrates His own love toward us in eternity past. The Father decreed that the Son who gave His total agreement would come into this world and live a perfect law-fulfilling life and die a sinner's death and be raised from the dead. And the Holy Spirit would be at work to bring people to see and behold the love and embrace this sacrifice that was made for them, for you and for me. The Godhead, the Trinity, each member agreeing in the covenant of redemption to make a way for you and for me to know everlasting life. And you think with all of that, Him knowing you before the foundations of the earth, that his disposition towards you is that you're just a miserable inconvenience that he should have thought twice about? Brother, sister, Christ died for us, and in so doing, he everlastingly secured for us the smile of God. Listen, God didn't send Jesus into this world so that He could love you. God loves you, and so He sent Jesus into this world to live and die for you. Do you know that? It makes a tremendous difference in how you think about God. God doesn't love you on the basis of Christ's death. No, God loves you, so He sent Jesus to die for you. I've said that many times. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So, what were the conditions that were met in us in order for God to send His one and only Son into the world that we might have Him, that He would die for His enemies? (laughs) None whatsoever. There can be none. Listen, the Scriptures do not even offer Christ to you on the basis of that you have repented. I'm not saying repentance is not necessary, but that's not the basis upon which Christ is offered. The Scriptures offer Christ to men and women and boys and girls who are dead in trespasses and sin and prior to the work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit are incapable of repentance, have no desire for repentance. And so lest we turn that into a work that we must do, we must be reminded that no condition can, no condition will be fulfilled prior to your being regenerated. Not one. 
And the second we find a condition for grace that can be met in us, we have distorted the gospel. That is why it is wholly, completely wrong, and I would stake my entire ministry on this. It is wrong to say that God loves you because Christ died for you. No, my friend, Christ died for you because God loves you. The death of Christ is not the reason for God's love for you. It is the love of God for you that is the reason for Christ's death in your place. You see, I think so many Christians really think that Christ's death is the cause of the love of the Father. And so we just have this fear that apart from Christ's death, God really doesn't love us at all. And so hence, this false notion of a grumpy God. But the Father didn't need Christ's death for us to be loved. Now, of course, the Father does not love us because we are His enemies, because we are sinners. But Paul's point here and elsewhere is that God loves us even though we were His enemies, even though we are sinners. He loved us before Christ died for us, and it is because He loves us that Christ died for us. Remember that. Don't ever forget that. He loved us from the beginning of time, therefore He sent His Son to die, who came willingly for us. And so even as we considered last week, life is tough, days and weeks and months may be difficult, but the smile of God is upon His children even when you can't see it. The smile of God, brothers and sisters, it is upon you. God is smiling upon you. He delights in you as His child. He's not angry at every turn. He's not disappointed and frustrated that He ever saved you in the first place. No, God smiles upon you. God loves you. He didn't wait until you had clean hands and a pure heart because that was never going to happen on your own. You were weak. He didn't say, I will only help those who help themselves because in our moralistic, self-righteous, self-serving hearts, there is no way our hearts would ever be inclined to help ourselves in any way that was actually useful. It was while we were weak, it was while we were helpless, it was while we were enemies that Jesus died for unrighteous, immoral, ungodly people. For you, for me, for us. And this is the heart of the Bible. Christ died for the ungodly. Friends, I know some of you hear this today, and you know that you're not walking with Christ. You've never placed your faith, your trust, your life in the hands of Christ. And today, this very moment, He invites you and welcomes you to, to come to Him and taste the water of life so that you might know and love this great gift of everlasting life to which I speak. You might think you need to clean yourself up. You can't. You can't do it. You might think you've done too much in this life. There's no way that God could love you. That's what you think. But Christ has died for His enemies. The Apostle Paul was a murderer. He killed God's people. God loved him, called him to himself. Christ died for him. Christ died for the ungodly. 
You might, not, you might think you're not the right kind of person. Maybe, maybe, you'll just, maybe you'll consider that later. But the Lord says, whoever drinks from the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The water of life is for you. It is offered to you. Will you drink? Will you taste from the well of Christ? Will you drink the water of life? Will you come to this Christ who died for sinners like you? He invites you and welcomes you and will never turn you away. Well, I guess we'll get to verses 9 through 11 next time. Brothers and sisters, let us always preach this to ourselves. You've heard it a lot today. You hear it every Sunday. You and I have a lot of baggage in this life. No doubt. But even though our sin may be great, our Savior is far greater. We were His enemies, but He loved us, and He loves us. He adopted us. We are His children. Formerly, God had sent prophets. Sometimes He sent angels. But now He has sent His only Son, and in giving us His Son, He's giving Himself at the right time that we, in our weakness as His enemies, that we could still say, Christ died for me. Brothers and sisters, Christ died for us.